0: Hi, this is Adam Wakeman from Snake Charmer and Ozzy Osbourne's band. You're listening to Focus on Metal. Focus on Metal.
1: Hey Metalheads, welcome to another episode of Focus on Metal and this week we bring you Kerrang! Episode 9. Yep, I know we claimed we were going to get it done last year and we didn't, but we have a couple of really killer guests that are creeping into 2018 and this week's guest is definitely one of them. I am talking about Steve Crusher Jewel. Yep, Crusher was the art director for Kerrang during the heyday. Yep, came to be uh, into that position around 1982 and guided their way through all of the uh, the golden years that we've been talking about during this Kerrang project. So Richie had a great interview with Crusher, and I definitely say that this guy held no punches back, I'm talking about uh, his likes and dislikes from back in the day. And for those of you who are unfamiliar with Crush's work, I guarantee you are indeed familiar with his work. He's done a a lot of books in the past, as well as some pretty famous uh, album covers, a little one from uh, Iron Maiden called Live After Death, uh, Ozzy Osbourne's Diary of a Madman, Speak of the Devil, and Bark at the Moon. And uh, then again, there was also that one uh, from uh, Black Sabbath, a little album called Born Again that uh, reportedly... Caused Ian Gillen to puke when he saw it. And Crusher is still out there these days doing some cool stuff. You want to find out all about his biography and what he's up to these days? You can go to crusher.co.uk. And that's Crusher, of course, with a K. So lots of good stuff this week. So no music, just all Richie and Crusher. And we're going to kick that one off right now.
0: Yeah. Hi, Crusher. It's Richie from Focus on Metal. Oh, hi. Is now okay for the interview? Hi, Richie.
2: Yeah, yeah. Good
0: night. You're good, yeah. So I definitely want yeah. to get to get you on because you were, you know, it's it's primarily I want to talk about '80s Kerrang which is when it was great, and you were heavily involved in, yeah, in that definitely. in that era. So I, I'm going to pick your brain yeah, a lot yeah. on uh on that kind, on that era, if that, if that's okay with you.
2: You could try. There's a lot I don't remember. But <laughs> you could try. You know who was great
0: for remembering stuff? Um, Malcolm, for one and uh,
2: yeah, yeah
0: dante dante was really good
2: yeah yeah no no Malcolm and dante Malcolm's got a a, a photographic memory yeah he's, uh, he's a he's a bit of a genius really yeah
0: yeah Dante said that Malcolm was Google before google, yeah doesn't
2: yeah, that's a, that's a brilliant, brilliant expression yeah yeah but there's a a lot from sort of uh nineteen eighty seven uh, that uh, it all all just became a haze for me. Yeah. Because, uh, I I wasn't just doing Kerrang! then. I was I also was doing uh, Well, actually more it's more 88. But, yeah, I started doing a TV show or radio show for BBC, and I was DJing the drum, Okay. Okay. Uh, the night and. You know, it's pretty crazy, time. But yeah, yeah, but far away, and not hopefully be able to help.
0: Yeah. So, how how did you end up working with Kerrang! in the first place?
2: Uh, well, what it was, let me think. I think it must have been um, the end of nineteen eighty-two, um, and I had, uh, I think. I I I was uh I think I just designed Ozzy's Diary of a Madman album. Uh well, it was around the time. I, I, I know that I was, I was just gone kind of stepping up from from being a regular freelance designer uh to doing some big stuff and uh I'd been in uh, I'd I've got a lot of breaks from Motorhead's uh, management. Um, a guy called Doug Smith and his wife Eve Carr, who uh, uh, obviously Doug was managing bands like uh, Auckland and Motorhead, and he had a whole stable of stuff. And Eve, his uh, I don't think she's wife or his, his partner. Uh, she's definitely his partner, but she they had a merchandising company, and I was doing. Uh, a lot of tour programs and stuff for them. You know, I did uh, the first ever Notehead tour program and, uh, you know, Girls' School, and I did some stuff for uh, oh, Ted Nugent and Gamma, and uh, there's a whole load of stuff. And and uh, anyway, uh, because I'd started to get a good portfolio together, I decided uh, I'd seen Kalang, and I. I, th- I I honestly thought uh you know, the content of it was brilliant, but I thought the design was absolutely uh, minimal, you know, it didn't represent what what the, the magazine was about. So I literally just phoned up uh the editor, um what's his name, Alan Alan
0: uh, Alan Lewis?
2: Alan Lewis. Alan Lewis, yes. Uh, I phoned him up and said you know, I told him, you know, what I'd done and uh, I would really be interested in having a look at my portfolio and see if, uh, you know, maybe we could do something together. And I remember going in, I was, I'm pretty sure it was just before Christmas time, and uh, we met in uh, this the three, three, two or three pubs around, because it was based in Covent Garden then. And uh, I remember it was like spitting distance from their office, the pub. And I remember meeting in there, and we had a a few few pints, and he looked at my portfolio, and he said to me, well, why don't we go away over the Christmas period, um, come back in the new year, and uh, I'd be interested in, if you redesign the mastheads. Do you know what mastheads are?
0: No, I was actually going to ask Um, you what they were.
2: Right, mastheads are... um, you know where where you open the page and it says news or album reviews or live reviews yes or the charts page uh-huh. it's it's just those those, those those just those headings you know those particular headings for the pages he wanted to have something that was consistent and uh, and and you know they could use throughout the magazine so I basically came up with that you know that. Uh, Jaggedy lettering, yes. uh, which was just, just a, a, a bastardization of the Kerrang logo that they were using. that I just, you know, I hand lettered it and uh, I, I actually did the logo as well. I did the Kerrang! you know, he didn't ask for that, but I thought, oh, well, I might as well do that at the same time. And I think I went in, I think it was in January of 83, um, and he loved it, he loved what, what I'd done. And within i think within within weeks i was I was working on a freelance basis um designing the magazine
0: yeah no 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 were were they you know, lo- were they looking for a new designer, or did you just put your foot in the door and ask
2: i just put my i just put my foot in the door, okay, I literally put my foot in the door. I think the guy that was designing it. I think he was doing sounds as well. And of course, you've got to remember uh, that it it kind of had to stop going. I mean, it was it was around issue. uh, It had been going. It'd been going for a while. I think it was issue thirty-five or thirty-six that I came into the scene. So it'd been going for probably a a, a good uh, a good year or so, uh, or. Probably maybe longer than that, but um, yeah, I mean, uh, I, I was just lucky. I, at that time, I was in a position where I always seemed to find myself in the right place at the right time, and uh, you know, I was just very lucky. Yeah, and and yeah, I mean, I, I was take, taken on on a freelance basis, although um, I, I I was initially i spent you know most of at least four or five days of the week in their office designing it because uh, it's the first time i'd done a a fortnightly magazine i had worked on other magazines but uh, i think that they were they were much simpler uh, than current was
0: yeah no uh, that, yeah, that-,
2: that was basically how i
0: yeah, now who who would be in the crying offices at that time? Like who would be staples there? Would, would Dante and Jeff be there a lot? Like who who were the staff? Uh,
2: I'll tell you what. I, give, you, give me give one second. I've got I've got the uh, my files here. Sure. Uh, it, well, no, Dan, I don't think uh, I'm not sure. Yeah, no, I think Dante was there. Malcolm was pretty definitely there. Um, let me just have a look. I can tell you exactly who was who was working there, uh, but I, I, Alan Lewis was definitely definitely the
3: editor.
2: Yeah. Uh, um, and uh, I can I can also tell you what the first Quran because I've got uh, I've got probably the ones that I I initially worked on and. Uh, have a look, uh, here we go, yeah, it was issue number 35 was the very first Koran that I designed which funny enough had, uh, it was a, a Black Sabbath story, and had a picture of uh, Tony Iommi on the cover, they didn't actually lose my logo, the Koran logo I designed on the front cover, but that was the first time that they used all the uh, the mastheads yeah. that I uh, designed uh, on the inside. And it's, uh, yeah, I mean you can you, you can actually if you look at uh, number thirty four and then number thirty five, you can see an incredible di- uh, difference. But yeah, uh, it, it, then it was the, the editor in chief was Alan Lewis, uh, the assistant editor was Dante. Uh, and it was just basically a b- bunch of contributors. It was a, a guy called Steve Get, uh, Chaz DeWally, Howard Johnson, Chris Welsh, Dave Dickinson, Pete McCaskey, Malcolm Dome, Xavier Russell, Laura Canyon, who was um, you know Sylvie Simmons. Yep. And Jeff Banks. Those those are the names. Those are the only names that are on the uh, you know the Karanga. Thing on the inside of the magazine.
0: Yeah. Now, now tell me, back then, what, what did you use to do to design the magazine? Because, like, of course, now you can do everything on a computer. But what, what technology was available then yeah, for you? No,
2: well, me, well, man, it was... It, it was cut and paste. You literally, you know, you had to... I, I, I had a, uh, a... a basic... Uh, template of the, you know, the, the pages of the magazine, and I would stick, uh, you know, the the, the words down, uh, and you know the the headings or uh, or the, the, you know the, uh, and I I'd, I'd have to trace the pictures where I wanted them to go. You know, you'd have to project the pictures onto the paper, to the to size you wanted. Do a tracing. Around it, and then told the the, uh, the the printer, you know how how it did to enlarge the transparency, I and mean, it was basic. It was actually, and when I look back on it now, and I think, you know, how we put it together, and it, it it's it's incredible, really. You had to you, you to, to send the whole series of instructions to the printer, um, you know, written down on on on, on bits of paper. Uh, it was very, very, very basic compared to, you know, when computers came in.
0: Yeah. Now, were you... You wouldn't have been involved in editing the text. That probably would have been Dante and Alan and, now, and Jeff.
2: No, well, uh, well, no, no. Jeff Barton, didn't have any, Jeff Barton didn't have anything to do with this at that time. Okay. Uh, Jeff was on sounds. Yeah. Uh, Jeff, you know, Jeff... Jeff Barton didn't come until later. Okay. Uh, uh, And that that was quite a kick at the arse for poor old Dante because Dante had been there, you know, all along. I mean, he was the assistant editor when I joined, and everybody thought when when Alan, uh, you know, moved on and the editorship was up for grabs, that Dante would get it, and for... Some whatever political bloody madness reasons
0: Jeff Barton ended up getting it. Mm. Yeah, when I spoke to Dante, Dante said exactly the same thing. Because Ma- when when I had Malcolm on, Malcolm hi- Malcolm said that Dante and Jeff never really got on. And when I asked
2: no, Dan-
0: no, when, I- when I asked Dante about it, he said the same thing you did he, he kind of had a chip up on his shoulder about not getting the editor job and Jeff came in and got it ahead of him.
2: Yeah, 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 no, it, it, everybody was shell-shocked. It was, you know, it was like, how the fuck did Barton get back? <laughs> and, and, and to, to kind of, uh, go to the end of the story very fast, uh, I, I, solely blame Jeff Barton solely for the decline of going into the show as it became.
0: Okay, we'll probably get to that. But um. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Crusher, did you have? Did you have a? Did you decide what photographs went into the magazine? If you didn't do the text.
2: Yeah, 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 yeah. I, uh, I would been uh, I think initially, uh, uh, Alan might have chosen the pictures, but. Eventually, I would be given a, a, a sheet of transparencies or black and white photos, and it was like, you know, use what, whatever you want, you want us to use. Or uh, if it, 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 it was the cover, then, you know, Alan would, would choose the picture for the cover and I'd work around it. But yeah, I was more or less given uh, pretty much free reign on the pictures that, that would be used.
0: And did, did the likes of Ross Halfa never say to you, like, why the fuck are you picking that one? Like, there's better ones there. Did you ever have any run-ins with any of the photographers?
2: I do uh, No, I had any run with them. Well, you know, Ross. Uh, Ross is Ross. <laughs> uh, I remember, I remember the first, one of the first things you came in and said, Oi, why, why did they call you Prussia then? And it, 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 it's like, uh, you know, as a, it's just a nickname, Ross. You know, it, it's nothing. And Ross was always very obnoxious and very uh, what, what can I say? You know, been too rude. Ross is Ross. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, we used to call him. We used to call him Gross Halfwit. <laughs> that was his, his nick, nickname, Gross Halfwit. <laughs> but yeah, Ross is Ross. I, I. I you know. I, I had my notes where I got on very well with Ross and then me and Ross had a, a, a pretty much a massive falling out and we've not really ever spoken since.
0: <laughs> yeah, was there any like photographers? what photographers in the US would you have been dealing with? Would Neil lot I can I can never pronounce his surname. Zlo- Sl or an, any of these guys out here?
2: Oh, uh, Oh, God. You um, know
0: who I'm talking about. Like, uh, would, you ha- would you have Would any... have
2: his first name?
0: Neil, um...
2: Oh, um, I, know, I know what you mean, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, I... The American photographers, I can't remember if, if we had much dealings with them or if they just sent their pictures to us. Uh, I remember Joe, Joe Geron, uh he came into the offices sometimes, uh, but... Uh, yeah, I know who you mean, Neil. I can't remember his surname. Yeah. I, know, I know exactly who you mean.
0: I, I think the other name, Mark Weiss, I think there's another rock photographer that did a lot yeah, of work yeah, in the 80s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's another guy, he probably yeah, contributed.
2: Right, yeah, yeah, he yeah, yeah, did indeed. indeed. Yeah, I'm so, pretty sure. So, Crusher, tell me,
0: how you, tell me how you designed the magazine. Just say they came up to you and they said, right here's the next issue, here's what we're going to do. Did you always start in a particular place?
2: No, not, not, uh, I mean, the easy pages to do were like, uh, the the page that had the singles and albums and US albums and import albums, you know, the charts page. Yeah. That was more or less the same thing. That was an easy page to do. The the hard work went into the... uh, the, the features, you know, that's where where I my forte sort of came in uh, in the features, and also that uh, I, I was pretty proud of the uh, it was then called Mayhem, which was the news pages, uh, which I'm looking at now, and they're so busy. When you compare them to the news pages you see in, uh in Kerrang now, there, there's so much news then, uh, and you know, I'm looking at it now and thinking, how the fuck did I manage to do all of that, get it all in? Uh, um, you know, the albums, pages. But what, what eventually happened is when we went weekly, um, more or less, the, like the, the charts pages, the albums pages, the live review pages, they were given to other people to design. They, I'd kind of done a, a basic, you know, look this is what you know crush used to make them look like you know use that as your format and and you design it and I concentrated on the prevalence and the uh, the uh, the features you know the, the big features the uh, big, big feature stories in yeah, yeah. Were, so did just,
0: you did you ever did you ever did you ever pick out any of the covers on the magazine?
2: Did I do what?
0: Did you ever pick out any of the covers, the front covers?
2: I don't. No, I mean, not only not only pick some of the front covers. I actually designed. I mean, I actually did illustrations. Yeah, of some of the front covers.
0: No, but like, uh, would you? Yeah. Did you ever pick out the who? What band were going to go on the front cover, or was that just someone else who always did that?
2: Oh, no, nah, that was always uh, someone, someone else. No, I don't. i, I I might have at some. Oh, oh God, no! Yes, I do. Oh God, it was one of the most controversial covers we ever did. It was when me and Nick Wall had absolutely fallen in love with the uh, Princess Purple Rain
0: album. Oh, <laughs> well, that was and you. <laughs> uh, and yes,
2: yeah, it was me and Nick. We were like you've got to get this. Because this, um, that album rocked. I mean, Purple Rain, fucking, you know, that it like guitar on there is fucking phenomenal. Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, it was, um, yeah, God, everybody hated that cover. Yeah, but, um uh, I don't think it was, that, it was as bad as the, the Phil Collins cover. And we also had Kate Bush on the cover. I could never understand that, neither. That one,
0: that one amazed me <laughs> because when I spoke to Dante, the one, part, the one I asked him what you know was there ever any competition about amongst the writers to interview someone, and he said Kate Bush was one of them that they all wanted to interview her because she didn't do that many interviews.
2: Oh yeah, yeah. That it was. A, it was, a, it was a, I think it was a world exclusive actually that we got. Okay. I don't know how it came about, but uh, I'm pretty sure it, it was. A, it it, it was not exclusive. But yeah, I could never understand. I mean, I I love Kate Bush, but it was like what the fuck she got to do with, uh, <laughs> you know, it's just a pair of tits really, isn't it, you
0: know. Yeah.
3: Not
2: being good not going to sound too sexist, but that's basically what it was. It was uh, just some titulation for the girls.
0: Yeah. Now were you ever involved in any of the stories? Um there was the view from the bar. I used to like reading that. I thought that was very oh, funny. Oh
2: God, yeah, yeah. I I that was everything really view from the bar. Um <laughs> you know uh being at uh, all kinds of mischief. Uh yeah, yeah, I mean that was that was part and parcel of of view from the bar was I mean of the bar, it, 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 I, was, I was amazed, you know, that we got away with. Uh because in all honesty, it, it was just a glorification of, of us just going out and getting pissed yeah. at concerts and and then writing about it. Uh, uh, but it gave the magazine, you know, personality and character, which is what they've taken, completely taken out of it now. Yeah, you know, It's got no character, it's got no personality.
0: You you did you had another thing in it mm. and I don't know whether you're going to remember this crusher. You had like you called it syrup yeah. of figs. It was like you had rock stars with wigs on, and you, were, it was you had a, to guess
3: who.
0: You had yeah. to guess what it? Was, was it a wig or was it real hair? And like you yeah. had the scorpion yeah, in it. You, yeah, had Paul, yeah. you had Paul Quinn from Saxon in it. Um, and I used to laugh at yeah. that. And yeah. Did you ever get in trouble with any yeah. of the bands for and those?
2: Uh, I'm pretty sure we, 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 there was something that went in every week from the bar that some poor bastard press officer was complaining about. <laughs> uh, but, uh, uh, yeah, well, they didn't give a shit then. That was the thing. They just didn't, they just didn't give a fucking shit. <laughs> it was like, hey, what are you going to do? See it? See it. You know? Yeah. Uh, it is a wig. We know it's a wig. You know?
0: <laughs> yeah. Did you ever have any of the bands turn up in the office and uh, want oh, to look for God. any of the writers?
2: Uh, we, do you know what? There was a time. There was a time. I remember this. There was a time when bands used to turn up, and it wasn't because they had been interviewed. It's because they knew that there was always a bloody party going on in the Kerrang office or a good time. There was a good time to be had. And we had bands like uh, Safe No More used to come in quite well. Big Jim used to come in and me and Big Jim would disappear and go off on mad dope smoking binges and (laughs) drinking. And then I'd turn up. I remember... Uh, Marillion came, uh, not Marillion, uh, McClalliker. Yeah. You know, they came in to, to see Jeff Barton once. And I went, uh, I, when they finished with Jeff, I said, come on, let's go to the pub. Uh, and I took them down to the, the local pub and we had uh, a few drinks there. And we ended up at my local pub uh, in Burnsy, where I lived. And that was the night that I ended up in a, in a fight with uh, with James Hotfield. Um, uh, and uh, it, was, it was madness, you know. I didn't even get back to work until, you know, I went out at lunchtime and I didn't get back to work till the next day. <laughs> um, and, it, and it, you know, the that guy that was that was quite regular. Some, you know, the worst thing really was at its worst. I'd go out for lunch and I wouldn't come back for two days, you know, and and I'd still get the magazine finished, but people were like, Where the fuck is he? Where's he gone? You know, and it's like, You know, don't fucking worry, mate. I'll get it fucking finished. I know what I'm doing. (laughs) You know, it was madness. It was bloody madness, honestly.
0: Yeah. Now, were you able to go, um, because you were in the office a, a, a lot, were you able to travel and did you do a lot of interviews? For the magazine. For- no,
2: I no no no. I I hardly did any. The first ever interview that I did was with Stevie Ray Vaughan because I loved Stevie Ray Vaughan. Um, and uh, I can't remember it was probably Jeff or someone. Hang on one second. Hang on one second.
0: Yeah, sure. Hi, it's Vinny Appice, and you're listening to Focus on Metal.
2: Yeah, they asked me to go down there. Uh, and do this little interview with Stevie Ray Vaughan. I don't even think it was for Kerrang! It was for uh, Guitar Hero, one of their offshoot magazines. But because I love Stevie Ray Vaughan so much, they just asked me to do it. I did interview a couple of bands. I met them interviewing one band called Crazy Head. But no, I mean, I wrote a few reviews and stuff like that for albums. I think I did a Stevie Ray Vaughan album, actually.
0: Is that something you would, like, did you actually ask, could you do any interviews and they said, no, we're okay? Or did you push that at all? Or were you just okay doing what I don't you
2: were doing? Only- I, no, I can't, I can't remember pushing for it. But uh, I think occasionally, you know, it would be suggested, oh, you know, Crush would be a good one to, to to get involved with that. But, you know, usually because, just because I was just such a fan of, uh, or loved the, the personal band so much. But uh, as I say, you know, it's very hard to remember because it was, it, was, it was constant mayhem. It was like a constant party.
0: Yeah.
2: Uh, it really was like a constant party. And we were just a bunch of functioning alcoholic drug addicts. <laughs> I mean, the majority of them, you know, but they're okay, they're, you know, some of, some of them were just alcoholics, but most of us were alcoholic drug addicts. <laughs>
0: Crusher, how did you feel when the magazine went weekly? Did you like that, like the fact that it went weekly, or did you think that it diluted the quality of it?
2: No, no, I was, uh, I was, uh, I thought it was, uh, it was definitely a compliment uh, because it, it then meant that we were competing with the likes of, you know, New Musical Express, Melody Maker, uh, and in fact, I, I think uh, we were probably bloody outselling. Uh, those magazines, those, you know, other papers. Uh, I mean, it, it, it went crazy at one point, you know, uh, late 80s, uh, well, yeah, late 80s. I mean, we were, I think we were making the biggest profit for that, for Spotlight publications. You know, and they they had magazines like... Um, Oh, what was it? I think they had like over over twenty-one. Not Cosmopolitan, but, you know. They had like women's magazines and and upmarket bloody magazines and, and shit, right? Yeah. And me, this little scruffy fucking magazine that nobody really gave a shit about was was making all the money that was supporting these supposed big magazines who who. You know, even though they were big magazines, they weren't making money. They weren't selling in the quantities that they should have been selling, and it was the profits from our magazine that uh, supported them. I remember once there was uh, it's the guy the guy there you know the guy called Dave Henderson and he's Dave Henderson and Jeff Barton. Those two are responsible for for the the shit that. Uh, Karanga's now become, especially Dave Henderson. Dave Henderson used to be a, he's a writer on sounds, and for we used to call him the Kiss of Death, right? And for some reason, he managed to float a couple of ideas to Spotlight to try and get um, sort of sort of the, the equivalent of, of what Kerangus. You know, like Kerangus is just like a one-off idea, yeah. Uh, that. You know, just just went crazy. Well, he actually managed to get a, a little bit further than that. But they, was, I can't remember what the fucking magazine was called, but this must have been around, I don't know, 89, 90. And he got uh, Spotlight to give mag- uh, money to, to start this magazine. And he was a pile of fucking shit. And it, I, don't, I can't remember how many issues it lasted. But, it but suddenly, you know, they've got these, these swank offices and they've got this incredible stereo system. And I'm looking at that thinking, look at their fucking stereo system. This is a fucking shit magazine. That, you know, it's just, just starting. And look at our fucking shit fucking stereo system. And I can remember tearing <laughs> our stereo system out the fucking plug and swinging <laughs> it around my head. And I was just about about to throw it out the window onto into the car park below us, and uh, I think it was some 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 bastard stopped me, Um, and yeah, you know, basically I smashed the stereo uh, because it was like this isn't good enough, you know. Please, please, we we probably paid for their stereo, and we have this shit, and we are the biggest, you know, we're the biggest money making. Magazine for this this publishing house, and they treat us like shit. Anyway, Dave Henderson, he he, this magazine, as I say, he, he he did a couple of things, and they all fucking they were flops. And as I say, we should call him the Kiss of Death. And he fucked off, right? Mm-hmm. He fucked off to uh, Emap Publications, and it was Emap that bought Karang, uh in, what was it, I don't know, 91, 92, somewhere around that, that that period. And I was the first one to be, it took them a year to fire me. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I mean, EMAP bought it and I can remember the managing director saying, oh, don't you worry, we're not going to change anything, we know how this magazine works, we know that you know you're, you're very rebellious, but you know, we're not going to change anything, don't you worry. And Slowly but surely, you know, EMAP started to get its little grip on it. And Dave Henderson, I mean, he's now fucking the Ubermeister I think at EMAP. But he was the one who basically took over Kolang and turned it uh him and Jeff Barton turned it into the shit it, it became.
0: Yeah. Now when when did you like was there one particular issue or, or particular time period in the eighties? when you were designing Kerrang, where you actually thought, wow, this magazine actually has some power in in, in, in metal, like some real power.
2: Oh, I mean, yeah, in all seriousness, I mean, that was, uh, you know, probably around 87, 88. And then when I was saying, you know, you know, you've got bands just turning up at the office, face no more. Duns and fucking roses. Just, you know, they walk into the office because they, met, they loved Kerrang. They didn't come in because they were being interviewed. They just came in because they wanted to hang out at fucking Kerrang. the <laughs> Karang office. You know, we, we sent out the workboy to go and get a bottle of Jack Daniels, which was probably demolished in about six minutes. But a number of them just, we were just sitting around the table, you know, chatting. I, I, Axel Rose had buggered off to, to Sounds Magazine because somebody had given them a bad review. And uh, he was leaving a... You know, a, a, I'm going to kill you. Letter to on the desk of whoever had, had written it because thankfully they weren't there. But you know, the, the only one that wasn't there was Izzy, Izzy Straddling. Um But the rest, they all, you know, and I say Faith Memoir, Metallica, um, fuck, you know, Slayer, everybody used to fucking come into the office. And that's when, when you got. Bands of that category just just coming in because they want to hang out with you, you know you're doing something right.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So when Dante left um, to form Raw magazine, I think it was in 88 or 89, yeah. a lot of the Kerrang writers left. Um, were you tempted to go with them?
2: Yeah. Uh, I, think, I think they tried to get me to go with them. But uh, 88, 89... Yeah, no, that's when things were going pretty good for me. Um, I was just started working for the BBC doing the radio show, and I was also doing, I think, Power Hour, a TV show for ITV, um, and I was started uh, DJing at Hippodrome. and uh, I was I was very I, I was very happy at Kerrang. Uh, I didn't uh, well I didn't say much. I, I didn't. I didn't actually know what the fuck was going on. I, I was just, as I say, from about 87, 88, I was living in a blur. Um, you know, it was just like a constant work party. You know, do work, party, do work, party. Um, and it was just, it was non stop for about five years like that to me. And... Um, And that's why I basically don't remember much about it because it, it, you know, it it was just constant, constant, either working or partying or doing both at the same time, you know, uh, like when I was DJing at the Hippodrome, you know, I'm working but fuck me, I was partying, and uh, you know when I'm doing a radio show and a TV show, I'm working but I'm having the greatest time of my life,
3: you know. Yep.
2: So yeah, I had no, uh, I think they tried to get into the, uh, uh to go with them, but I wasn't, I wasn't interested.
0: Yeah. One of the things, Crusher, I, I started buying Kerrang! in 86, right? And one of the things that used to drive me mad about the magazine, and, and now I'm talking to the guy who designed it, you'd have a yellow page with yeah. a lime green writing on it. And I'm like, I'm going to get a headache. <laughs> I'm going to get a fucking headache trying to read this. You must have known. Yeah, you yeah. must have known that when you did no. it.
2: No! No, 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 no. Because sometimes, because because I was so used to doing it, I would go, oh, let's try it. Because I would never see it until it came back from the princess, right? Yeah. I just had it in my head and I was thinking, oh, yeah, go on, we've never tried that. Let's see if it works. And then it'd come back and go, oh, fuck me, that doesn't work, does it? <laughs> 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 uh, yeah. But I, I, I would always sit and I we would we'd get, we would get, um, Uh, a proof you get a proof back and I would they'd go to me what the fuck's this and I'd go hang on a second and then I would hold it up and I would read it I would read it to them in a normal voice at a normal pace and say what's wrong with it I can fucking read it why can't you you know and as long as I could read it you know I didn't have you know I didn't think they could argue with it but yeah no I did do some fucking atrocious things with it Uh, (laughs) that's for sure
0: yeah, now, which of the writers in there do you think over the years you got on the best with and who who did you not get on with at all?
2: Well, at one time, me and Nick Wall were like bloody brothers but sadly, uh, we had a great falling out uh, and uh, again, it's never kind of been settled because uh, Nick disappeared up his own fucking ass for a while you know, because he was a superstar writer. And, uh, you know, suddenly all his mates sort of helped. Because Nick came, you know, he, he, he was pretty down and out when he started writing for Perang. Although he'd had a very successful uh, uh, career, he was basically, uh, you know, a recovering heroin addict. And, uh, you know, I, I helped him a lot to, to, to get back on his feet. And then as soon as he's back on his feet and earning money again, he kind of forgets, you know, who his mates were. Uh, but uh, uh, I mean, most I I kind of liked all of the, the writers on on current To be honest, they're all they're all good guys. You know, Dave Dixon. Um, now Dante was a great writer. Um, he's a he's a perfectionist. It was because of Dante that the magazine never had anybody mistakes in it. You know. Yeah, uh, he, he oversaw it at the printers to make sure that that, that magazine, uh, you know, okay, there'd be, you know, mistakes with like the colours of the pages and stuff like that, but that's down to me, not down to him. But you know, the the words and everything else, you know, Benji was a perfectionist.
0: Yeah, yeah. And, uh, I, like I've interviewed Sylvie, I've interviewed Xavier, I've interviewed Malcolm, I've interviewed Stefan Shirazi, I've interviewed Derek Oliver. You, like, you'd know all those guys. You would have got on with yeah, all of
2: them. They treat... Yeah, I love all of them. You know, they treated Stefan like shit. Or Jeff Barton tre- treated Stefan like shit. He's treated Dave Dixon like shit as well. And uh, I'm so glad that Stefan's gone on to do so much, you know, in his position now with, with Metallica and, you know, what he's doing. Uh, it's I'm, I'm so happy for him because I can remember, you know, him being the new boy and he had a fucking rough ride and there were moments like that and I remember Dave Dixon fucking kicking uh, sorry, Jeff Barton kicking Dave Dixon Dave Dixon's a tiny, you know, he's a tiny little guy and Barton kicking him as hard as he could up his ass out of the office and, uh, you know, shit like that uh, uh, but I liked all of them uh, you know, the only one, I you know I'm going to say, I don't really have much respect for Jeff Barton. That's probably the only, only one. And, and and now, same with, with Nick Wall. But as I say, at one point, me and Nick Wall, we were inseparable. We were like fucking, you know, the toxic things. We were, we were, we were you know, everywhere. We'd go everywhere, do everything together. And, uh, but, uh, you know, Barton, yeah, Barton, I don't like.
0: Yeah, so tell me about the end. With Kerrang, how all that came to be?
2: Well, all I, all, all I can remember is I, I think it was something like an Easter weekend. It was a bank holiday weekend. And we. And now, whether this is true or not, I don't know. But, but I, what is true is that I left the office on a Friday evening, like right, for a bank holiday weekend. And I came back on the Tuesday. And I remember it being early, about 9.30, and there was a board meeting being called for, Kerrang, Record Mirror, Sounds, and there was one other publication, it was all the publications that were on the seventh floor, We were on the seventh floor of the, uh, the Express building, right, it's a beautiful new building by Blackfriars Bridge, and it's like, oh, fuck, shit, what's going on? And, uh, we all got called into this this meeting, and the uh, the big boss, Lord I think his I think it, was, it I think his name was uh, Lord Stevens. I could be wrong on that, but he was the übermeister. He was the boss, right, of the whole fucking lot. Because we had the Daily Express in there, the Sunday Express, the Daily Star, Auto Express. You know, it's a it's a whole fucking factory of of newspapers and magazines and shit coming out of this this one building, and the big boss comes in and goes, right, from this moment, sounds, record mirror, karang, blah, 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 you're sold. Uh, I've sold you all to EMAP. In fact, uh, sounds, you no longer exist. Sounds is finished, right? The rest of you, I've sold. Um, At the end of this meeting, There'll be a series of coaches waiting for you at the bottom of the building. Get into the coach, uh, and that's going to take you to look at your new offices. And once you've seen your new offices, you'll get back into the coaches, come back here, you'll empty your desks, and then that's it. Goodbye, thank you, ta And that was it. You know? Uh, and we went out, we, we left the meeting, and we got onto the coaches, and that's when there was a guy, it was, he was the, uh, again, he was the uh, the big Ubermeister at, in that Publications. a guy called Tom Maloney, right? He was on the coach, and we all got on, and we're driving to this shithole. Uh, I can't even remember where it was. It's some fucking shithole. Um and he's going. Look, I know this is shock to you, and you must be—you've got to be aware that we know how you you function. We know that how you work. You know, you like to drink. You like to party. But you know, we're not going to change any of that. We want to continue to be the success that you are. Blah blah blah. You know, sucking ass, sucking ass, sucking ass, uh, sucking ass, and lying through his fucking teeth. Anyway, we got to this these new offices which was like an old Victorian fucking couple of houses knocked together and we walked in and I'm assuming that there must have been a, a, a video magazine or something there previously because all the window ledges had videos stacked on top of each other and you could ha- there was hardly any light coming through the windows and uh, and and this Tom alone goes, oh, don't worry about those. When you come back later this afternoon after you've cleared your desks at the, you know, the express building, all of those will have gone, you know, and you'll be able to just move in with your stuff and it will be, you know, fine. Don't you worry about it. So then we got back in onto the coach, fucked off. Um, it took me about two minutes to clear my desk, you know, put my bottle of Jack Daniels in and with fucking pens and pencils into the fucking uh, box. I went down to pay my bar tab at the at the bar, because we had a, a uh, what do you call it, a subsidized bar. In. That was the other great thing about the because we had a subsidized bar and a subsidized restaurant. Right? <laughs> so, you know, we, we were living in fucking, you know, Eden. It was fucking Garden of Eden as far as publishing is concerned, and we were going from the Garden of Eden to like a fucking teen fucking shack in a ghetto. And I went down to pay my, my bill, and they said, what bill? I said, oh, come on, no, I owe you, I know it. He said, no, you don't owe us anything. What do you want to drink? And at the time, I was drinking uh, blue Smirnoff as my drink of choice. And I remember they got a half pint glass, and they filled about two thirds of it with fucking Smirnoff, blue, blue label Smirnoff put a little bit of fucking orange juice in the top, <laughs> because she the little bits of yellow going through the vodka. And we go, there you go. It's the last drink. It's on us. And there is no bar tab for you to pay. And I just necked it in one because I had to get back on the fucking coach. Um, and I got back on the coach. We got to this, the building again, this fucking tin fucking shack in the ghetto. And all the videos. Was still on the window ledges. So I just walked over. By this time, of course, the dog was starting to take effect in my body. And I put my hand behind it and I just walked along the window ledge and just dragged all the videos, you know, just <laughs> crashing, crashing on the floor. And I got through about two window ledges. And Tom Maloney, the that boss, is standing there, you know, watching all of this. And suddenly Jeff Barton's you know, yelling at me, Stop, stop, stop. I should stop that. And Tom Malone goes, How old are you? And I said, I'm four and a half years old, fucking regressing fast. You said that these fuckers have been gone and you lied to us. Is this is the start of our new relationship. And Barton goes, Right, you go and apologise, leave and don't come back to to to, to your sober and, and, and that you know. And I was like, Yeah, okay, fine. And I walked out, and Malone stood at the door, and he goes, I said, Oh, very really sorry about that, but you know, as far well as I'm concerned, you lied to us. He said, so, Well, we'll see you tomorrow then, won't we? I said, and he said, We'll see you early tomorrow morning, won't we? He said, No, actually, tomorrow morning I'm going to do uh, my radio show. He said, Well, oh, nobody will be in. But uh, Actually, in the afternoon, I've got to do my TV show, so I might be in the day after tomorrow, and just walked out. And that's it. That was my card mark. And it took him a year to get me out after that I was also going to fucking hit him but uh, someone stopped me <laughs> wow <laughs> um, Yeah, so that was the first day at EMAP yeah
0: wow yeah. so so how many of the um, the Monsters of Rock Donington shows did you end up going to in the 80s did you go to all of them
2: uh, from, from 83 yeah from 83 I didn't just go to all of them uh, in the 90s I was the compare DJ
0: okay um,
2: have you seen my web?
0: Have you seen my website? I have, yeah. I I know you. I know you. You were the DJ for a lot of the ones in the nineties. I didn't know what he had been to yeah, all of the ones yeah. in the eighties, yeah. though. From eighty
2: okay. three, uh, From eighty three, we went to everyone from eighty three. God oh. Almighty, yeah, yeah. We went. I'm I'm, you know, I'm
0: going to bring up. I'm going to bring up a story about Malcolm Dome and Tequila and Cronus and Venom
2: yeah.
0: having an altercation backstage. Were you at? The, were you at? Do you have, do you remember seeing that? I'd,
2: what when Malcolm got
0: uh, there? Were, you were all drinking pints of tequila backstage at one of the Doningtons, and he had a fight with Cronos yeah. and Venom. Do you remember any? Yeah. Ever, ever, do, you yeah. ever, do you remember ever seeing anything like that back there? That you were all just too wasted.
2: And... I didn't. I didn't. I didn't. I didn't see it, but I fucking. Uh, I know it happened. So it definitely fucking happened. <laughs> and I, what I do know, is I've got a picture of me. Nick Wall and Lars Ulrich, with our cocks out, was uh, standing over a passed-out Kronos in the in a fucking in the hotel, right. And we were all going to piss on him. <laughs> and we stopped. There is there is there is a, there is a picture of, of it's me. Nick. I'm pretty sure it's me. Nick Wall and Lars Ulrich stood there with our cocks out over fucking Kronos's head, uh, about to piss on him.
0: Wow, wow.
2: Because so, of what he'd, done, what he'd done to Malcolm. Okay. But yeah, no, he did. He did punch Malcolm out. Yeah, that's true.
0: Yeah. I just got a couple of quick mm-hmm. questions before I leave you go, Crusher. I asked this to all the writers, and am going to ask it to you. Was there one band that you loved in that era that the magazine pushed to make big and they never made it? Because you used to take chances on bands and put them on the cover, and not all of them made it. Yeah, yeah. And I'm just wondering, is there
2: one that well, comes to that, mind with I, you? I, I, a lot of that was down to fucking Jeff Barton, actually. You know, the the, the shit that went on the covers, uh, apart from Prince. <laughs> 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 but uh, no, I I can't. To be honest, I I, I can't think of one. No, I okay, can't. okay. I'm sorry.
0: No, no, that's okay. Um, now just before I leave you go, do you want to just talk um a, a minute? You got you got a book on Black Sabbath out now, don't you? That's available.
2: Yeah, 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 I do. Yeah. Yes,
0: so can you just tell me a little bit about what that's about and where they can get it?
2: It's available uh, on Kindle. You can get it from Amazon. And uh, if you bear with me one minute, I'll uh, I'll give, give you some the exact details of what it's all about. It's when I went to Otter's on tour in 1999. Okay. Uh, on the OzFest in America. And it was uh, it was Black Sabbath. uh Bondi was a uh, special guest. Slipknot had just started, right? They hadn't even released the album. They didn't release the album until halfway through the tour. And by the end of the tour, they'd stopped reading albums. They were just they were just like a, a, a band on the second stage, you know? No one had fucking heard of them. And uh, yet, After Forever, it's, uh, it's a monument in metal when the kings of the genre Black Sabbath were on their greatest tour, and I was with them. I was the DJ MC photographer and the band's confident as Sabbath slayer, Slipknot, Rob Zombie, and other giants of rock blazed loud across the United States. It was Sabbath's finest hour, uh, documented in words with over a thousand pictures from on stage, backstage, and inside the dressing room. And uh, there you go. It's uh, an insightful, intimate story of set and I get fucking out.
0: Okay. And you can get that where at, at your website or uh, Amazon?
2: No, no, no. Uh, Amazon. Yes, yeah, I'm afraid it's only available on at the moment on Kindle. Okay. Um, and it's quite exp- it's, it's quite expensive, but that's because it's got over a thousand pictures in it. Oh wow! Uh, and Amazon. Amazon charged me a fucking fortune uh, to download it, right? Um, So I'm not making this huge fortune from it that people think I am. I make a few quid off every one, but the majority of that money is going to to Amazon, uh, who charged me a fortune for people to download it. Yeah, but it's because of this, as I say it's, it's got over a thousand it's got over a thousand pictures and I think it's about it's, it's 85,000 words as well it's over a thousand pages long
0: oh wow amazing yeah yeah. so just final question for me Crusher do you, do you have a funny Aussie story you can tell me where you, you went you might have gone out on a session with him and something happened that wasn't supposed to
2: I remember when we did Guy the Madman uh, we met up in the there was a, a, a pub across from Finn Costello, the photographer's studio that we were going to shoot the cover in. And there was a, we met met up with Ozzy, uh, with the, the crew that was working with Finn, um, to have a drink. And for every pint that we drank, Ozzy drank three pints and three, I think it was brandies, either double or treble brandies, right? That's what every pint that we had. And we had three pints before we went Besides, to, to go to the studio. But by then, I've had nine pints and probably the best part of two-thirds of a bottle of, of fucking brandy. Right? <laughs> and and we, we shoot the back cover first because on the back cover, uh, there's no makeup on him. We had to put makeup on him for the, the front cover. Um, so we do the back cover and, and that was pretty easy going. Uh, and then we go, right, Ozzy, now you've got to get out of these clothes, put these clothes on, and then we're going to put the makeup on, on you. And he's like, okay, uh, put the makeup on me and get, get the makeup on. And he says, Right, I'm going to go for a piss now. Uh, and he's got the clothes on and he disappears, right? And it gets right, like, fucking five, ten minutes. And it's like, check the toilets and he's not in the toilet. It's like, fucking you know, hell, check the pub, right? And he's in the pub <laughs> in the fucking tall gear, right? God knows how much he's drunk in, you know, 10, 15 minutes it took us to get back. But I remember that when we, it was like, right, Ozzy, all you got to do is hold your arms out and, and you know, snarl at the camera, you know? Right, got it, fucking got it, right? Hold his arms out, it's like, I can hear Finn going, click, 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 and he gets about ten pictures off, and then Ozzy just went fell face forward onto the floor.
0: <laughs> brilliant, brilliant thank,
2: crusher. Thank God in those ten, in those ten pictures we actually got the cover.
0: Amazing, <laughs> and, and I, you know what? That's an amazing yeah. album cover too.
2: It is. It's a good, good album cover, isn't it? Yeah. And and the way for for it, it gets, it, it gets worse. You know the, the, the little boy who's on the album cover? Yeah. Uh, there's a little boy on there. right? That was also his son, Lewis, uh, right? Um, and on the table, I don't know if you ever noticed, on the table, because this is after Ozzy's bitten the head off the dove, right? He's got a stuffed dove on that table that looks like it's, it's lying over there with its head hanging over the edge of the table. But that was actually a very expensive stuffed dove that's made to look like that, you know?
3: Uh-huh.
2: And um, I can't remember who, who said it, but someone said, Lewis, what did your dad do with doves?" And who picked up the fucking stuffed dove and breaks the fucking head off it. <laughs> and it's Oh, fucking hell, there we go. 400 quid worth of fucking prop down the fucking cheese. <laughs>
0: and is this when his yeah. father's lying, lying face down on the floor he did this? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, brilliant. Brilliant, Crusher. Yeah, well, Crusher, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Absolute blast.
2: Okay, mate, brilliant. All
0: right, Crusher, have a good rest of the evening. Brilliant. Okay, okay. I'm talking to you. You Thanks. take care. All right, Crusher. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Bye. Bye. Right. Bye. All
1: right, Metalheads. There you go, Richie's long awaited chat with Crusher Jewel. And I I'm in all seriousness Richie was psyched to be able to do that interview. He's been wanting to talk to Crusher right from the start of the project. One of the people that he really wanted to get on the show because, uh, you know, as the art director, he was kind of the the look and feel of the whole thing. So, again, big thanks to Crusher for taking so much time to talk to Richie. And if you want to keep up with Crusher, then you again, head to Crusher.com. Dot co dot uk so that is it for this week's uh, focus on metal thanks for spending another hour with us here and we will be back next week with more metal for you not sure what yet we got a few things in the fire and just kind of juggling around see how it works out whether or not uh richie has a chance to get down here and do a little discussion if not then uh, we'll go with plan b either way we will be back again next week with more good stuff for you in the meantime you can keep up with us at focus on metal.net, focus on over on Facebook as well as Twitter. So uh, that's it for this week. That's it. There ain't no more stick a fork in it. Kerrang episode number nine is done. So for Richie, myself, and everybody else here at Focus on Metal, have yourselves a great metal week. And until we talk to you again next week, remember Focus on Metal! Everything else is insane. If uh. I